Bitcoin is really three things, in my opinion. There's obviously a technology layer. There's obviously a monetary layer. But then there's this also layer of people, and I think you can't you can't ignore that. Um, you can copy the computational layer. You can make as many nodes as you want on Amazon or whatever. You can spin up your own um, fork of the blockchain. The data is all public, right? So you can copy the monetary layer. What you can't copy is the people. You can't spin up people who value your other thing. Let's absolutely go. My name is Patrick, and welcome to the Bitcoin Pitch Podcast, where I'll chat with anyone in Bitcoin. I don't care if you're a pleb, anon, or OG. You'll be giving us your Bitcoin elevator pitch and answer some quick-hitting Bitcoin questions that will be beneficial to newcomers. The goal of the show is to keep it short and sweet for all those people you are trying to orange pill. Today's guest is Jimbo. Jimbo is a software engineer by trade and also the author of Orange Coin Good, The Value of Bitcoin. Here's my conversation with Jimbo. All right. Thanks so much, Jimbo, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you um, taking the time to chat Bitcoin. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So to get into it, um, if you could just give some background about yourself and then also your Bitcoin story, how you got into it. Sure. So um, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, my background uh, is I'm a professional software engineer by trade. Um, some years ago, I studied money pretty intently just as on my own and then um, later studied people. Uh, and so my Bitcoin rabbit hole story, <laughs> I embarrassingly, I started ignoring Bitcoin around 2011. Um, and uh, just like most people on first contact, I thought, wow, that sounds like a scam. I'm sure it's going to blow up uh, in the bad way. Uh, and then around 2012, when it didn't blow up, I was like, hmm, that seems, seems kind of interesting. But it took me another year before I got up the courage to uh, make my Mt. Gox account, where I, I <laughs> of course, lost money like everybody else uh, who had an account on Mt. Gox. Then uh, from 2014 onward, I, I wasn't sure if what I was witnessing was kind of the slow death of Bitcoin. Um, but then when it hit new all-time highs in 2017, I had conviction. I was like, this thing is never going to die. And then even before I understood really, that was when I dove into the rabbit hood actually was in 2017, but I was already, I already had full conviction um, before that, just based on having watched it for so long. Um, yeah. And then from 2017 onward, I was um, writing my book, which you might ask me about next. So I won't. Yeah. <clears throat> to, to just um, ask a quick question, what was it yeah. like? Um, signing up for Mount Gox like what was that <laughs> process like because I get obviously I wasn't around I, I wasn't into Bitcoin at that time so but I I can I've heard different stories about it and how sketchy it was so I guess I don't know if you just want to talk briefly about that yeah sure so um okay so yeah jumping back in time a little bit so around uh late 2012 I was I was starting to flirt with the idea of maybe getting into Bitcoin and I was looking at the charts and started to look at them in log scale and I said okay well tends to do this blow off top thing and then settle down for a while. So um, I need to be in the place to do that. And the place to do that at the time was Mt. Gox. So Mt. Gox, for people who don't know, was a shady Japanese exchange where you have to wire money internationally to get money in there. So at the time, they supported a couple of different payment rails. One of them was called Dwala, which no longer exists. Um, but you could either Dwala or you could like, uh, you know, international wire transfer and stuff. And I was like, well, I don't want any part of what I'm doing here to be related to my regular everyday banking because I don't want somebody who later hacks Mt. Cox, later it was hacked. I, I didn't want any future hackers to be able to get my bank account information. So I set up a new bank account with an institution I'd never done business with before, funded that with cash in person, then used that to fund my Dwala account 
and then used Walla to fund my Mt. Gox account so that there were like arm's length, you know, somebody would have to hack several levels deep to get to my regular bank account information. So I felt pretty good about that. And so, um, yeah, it was shady. And, you know, like I said, at the time they supported Dwala. So working through Dwala was my uh, second layer of digital prophylactic that I felt pretty good about. Yeah. And <clears throat> I don't know like what the, I guess like the, obviously there wasn't a ton of education back then, but were, was it talked about like being able to take in the coins off of uh, Mount Gox? Like, was that brought up a ton or was it even really kind of known at the time? Sure. So this is where I'm embarrassed to say. So when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, I ignored it because people said, oh yeah, there's a white paper and they solved this double spend problem. And um, in my hubris, I didn't have a lot of uh, faith in academic institutions. And so when I heard that there was a white paper, I was like, mm, that's okay, whatever. Um, so I kind of ignored it. And so I also didn't do a lot of deep dive on the forums. I didn't start reading anything on the Bitcoin forums until 2017. So if there was information about um, taking control, and I had heard people talk about like, yeah, you can, you know, I, I mean, even the term running a node wasn't something that I remember from that time. So if you could, it wasn't something I was interested. In. I was also very much in a fiat mindset at that time. I wasn't trying to acquire Bitcoin to have Bitcoin. I was trying to acquire Bitcoin to make a trade. And so you know, I, I uploaded my money from my bank account to Dwalla to Mt. Gox, bought one Bitcoin, and then sold it a few days later for $8 of profit. And I was like, yes, I'm a success. Well, that left my $8 on the exchange, took my principal off. And I'm like, all right, now I'm going to day trade with my eight bucks, uh, you know, which I then subsequently lost when uh, when Mt. Gox imploded. So that's, yeah. that's yeah, that's in a nutshell. It's <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting story because um, obviously like, everyone has a different story who got into Bitcoin earlier. And I guess it's probably interesting for you just thinking back on it now, like how much you've obviously known compared to back then. And I don't know, it's, it would, it would just, if I was in like a position like that, where I got into it that early, I, I feel like I would think about it all the time, just like mistakes I made or something like that. I don't know, but it's tough to say they were mistakes. Cause it's more, it's just, you didn't know, you know? So yeah, I know that's it's it's a really good point. You know, if I had put more money into it, I don't know if I had if I would have um, taken self custody, I would have just lost more on Mount Gox, right? So that's not necessarily bad. And then, um, like I said, I would check in on the price every once in a while from like 2014 through 2017, and I didn't know if what I was witnessing was the slow death. Again, I wasn't on any of the forums or anything. So all I was looking at was price, mm. and I, I didn't know if what I was wa watching was a slow death, and so. I didn't really feel bad about it because I, I knew that I wasn't losing what I didn't put on the table. So, right. but, yeah. but now in retrospect, obviously, yes, I was stupid and I should have <laughs> like, I should have YOLO'd all in every single moment of every day and, uh, and held my keys the whole time. That's what I should have done. And that's what I do now, but. I right. That's, that. uh, I think that's the life of all Bitcoiners. We all have that, that similar story. So, yeah. um, all right. So to kind of dive into your book, which you mentioned earlier, you know, can you talk about your book, Orange Coin Good, um, and also just why you decided to write it? <clears throat> yep. Um, so let me start with the why. Uh, so in 2017, when I started falling down the rabbit hole, I was doing a lot of research. Um, and I realized in talking to my colleagues who were <laughs> not as knowledgeable about how money works. See, I'd, I had already read Creature from Jekyll Island. I was already familiar with the Fed and how, you know, uh, modern central banking works. And so for me, it was like all of that was um, already background that I had. I didn't need to also learn that. So then when I started talking to people about it, I realized there was all the stuff they didn't know. And so I started by trying to just write a newsletter about what was going on with, with the SegWit forks and the Bcash forks that people were asking me about what, my, what I thought of those things. 
And um, as my writing got longer and longer, I realized I was going to need to write a book. As that got longer and longer, I realized it was going to be about 600 pages to say everything I wanted to say. And nobody wants to read 600 pages. So I uh, decided to split it up into a series of four books and then capped off one 150-page chunk as what I felt like was a self-contained introduction. And that's what became Orange Queen Good. So that's my book. Um, what is it? Basically, I was trying to answer the, the principal question that people encounter when they first encounter Bitcoin, which is, um, how can this uh, crazy internet money that's not backed by anything have any value, right? That's the key question because until you can until you can answer why it can have any value, then why you would buy it, it just it just looks like a gamble. Um, so I was trying to answer that question, and so the book is broken down into three parts. Uh, the first part is kind of background on why we need good money. Um, it talks about how fiat currency is bad. Uh, it talks about um, reciprocity, our our proclivity to want to give something back. When somebody does something nice for you, you feel like you should do something back for them and, and how that underpins our need for money as a technology. Uh, then I go into the rabbit hole a little bit. Um, my contribution to that is that uh, Bitcoin is really three things, in my opinion. There's obviously a technology layer. There's obviously a monetary layer. But then there's this also layer of people. And I think you can't, you can't ignore that. Um, you can copy the computational layer, you can make as many nodes as you want on Amazon or whatever. You can spin up your own um, fork of the blockchain. The data is all public, right? So you can copy the monetary layer. But what you can't copy is the people. You can't spin up people who value your other thing. Um, and so, so I spend chapter four then talking about the different people of Bitcoin and how they interact. Um, part two is stuff that most Bitcoiners would find um, pretty simple. It's just setting up a wallet, how to receive Bitcoin how to secure it. I use the analogy of email. Um, so I kind of walk through the steps of like, if you were trying to describe to somebody in 1993, sending an email, there'd be a lot of steps that today you take for granted, but you know, you have to create an account, you have to set up a password, you have to write, uh, write an email, eventually broadcast it, you know, and all of those same steps are present in Bitcoin. So I kind of walk through that. And then part three is where I talk about stuff. Um, I get into these four principles that I think are really important for money. Um, and I can talk about these or, or not, it's up to you. Uh, uh, rivalry, excludability, fungibility, and hardness. Um, and then at, in the last chapter of the book, I close out with a description of how I believe that Bitcoin will become the universal metric of intersubjective value, the way we've measured the value of everything else. And that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's a great overview. Um, <clears throat> and I, I know you touched upon it in the beginning um, and it kind of rolls into my next question. What, why do you feel like we need Bitcoin as a civilization? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure that um, listeners of your podcast are familiar with uh, how terrible it is that we have, um, how terrible fiat currency is. The, the model that I've been using lately to explain why we need Bitcoin is that when the money is bad, it monetizes other things. So people look at their house as being a, a store of value. They, look, they think of their house as something that should appreciate. Well, a house is really a slowly depreciating good. If you just live in a house and you don't do any improvements, the house is going to get worse. It's going to have wear and tear. It's going to have weather. It would eventually erode. Um, you have other goods that are slightly less durable, but still somewhat durable, like a vehicle. You buy a car and your used car still has some value. Um, you wear, you know, you use appliances in your home, your used appliances might still have some value. You wear clothing and that still has a little bit of value, but less obviously than these other things. And then there are some goods that are just completely used when you use them like water or food, like they're just, they're just wasted after you consume them. The worse the money is, the further down that list, it monetizes things. So our money in the US 
is not quite as bad as some other places. So really, we only have monetization of our housing and to a limited degree, cars. I've seen some people note that like, hey, my used vehicle this year is worth more than it was last year, right? People feel like they're a genius for buying the right used vehicle. When real, in reality, what, what's happening there is that the money, the bad money is monetizing more of goods further down on the, on the hierarchy of durability. If you have a hyperinflating um, currency, it's so bad that even having perishable food is better than having the money. You'd rather go buy produce at the grocery store because the bananas on your shelf are going to last longer than the value of the money as it's depreciating. So the reason we need good money is because it creates abundance. The harder the money is, the more that it can absorb that monetary function of storing value. And then everything else is abundant by contrast. So in order to move into a future of abundance, we need hard money so that it can demonetize all of the other goods that are competing for that monetary premium. I think that was a great example, like great articulation there. Um, really appreciate it. And you brought up the, uh, <clears throat> the housing. I have like conversations with my friends about that. Cause like, uh, most of us have houses now. Um, and you know, we're like, we're talking about the value of it now compared to when they bought it. And like some of them bought maybe in the past year or two and like, it's significantly risen. And I'm like, I, I always try to bring up the point. I'm like, yeah, has it risen in value? Like, I don't think it has. And I always try to point at too, like I have two younger kids and we've been in our house since 2017. And besides one, maybe two areas of the house we've done improvements on, but outside of that, <laughs> my kids are just like destroying our house. Like you said, it's a depreciating asset unless you're completely redoing everything and making, making it better. Um, it's, it's not gaining value. And I mean, I, I, I just, I see it in my house. Like I just see certain corners, like maybe there's like a piece of drywall, like falling off for whatever reason, uh, kids bumped into it or something and just other, other pieces in the hardwood floor might be like cracking and stuff. Like that's not, that's not good over time, you know? And, and I don't know, people just don't want to see it that way. They've just seen the inflation in houses and real estate just goes up. So that's where people are putting their money. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely true. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say, you know, my house was the best investment I ever made. If you ask those same people, it probably was the only investment they ever made. Like, did they ever invest in anything other than their home? Probably not. Um, but, you know, when the money is bad, people look for other places to store their wealth. That's why I feel we have um, everybody FOMOing into a stock market that's super inflated because, you have to do something. You have to earn some kind of yield. Everybody's chasing yield because the money itself is bad. So, you know, I, I, I don't have to convince your audience. Your audience knows that, uh, that the fiat currency is terrible. And, um, you know, the sooner we can demonetize all of this other garbage, uh, the sooner we'll have abundance. That, an example I recently came up with is, you know, it's like you go to a banquet, you know, some kind of buffet situation. Some people get more food and other people get less food because they choose to, like just different people want different amounts of food. In that context, redistribution makes no sense. Like, why would you take from this person and give to this other person? It's like, if you want more, just go get some. It's at the buffet, right? So we have some goods that are so plentiful here in the, in the United States that we don't worry too much about it. We have water fountains where they give away water for free, clean water that's available to drink. There are other places in the world where that's not the case, but at least it is here. The better the money is and the more abundance there is, the more people are willing to just give away things that are necessary for And so in my opinion, the harder the money is, the more we can move up that that value stack and the more affordable everything is that makes life worth living. Yeah, definitely. And I, <clears throat> I, I, I kind of like understood that listening to Jeff Booth, like in past year and also reading his book, 
Um, so highly recommend that um, price of tomorrow. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, so to, to kind of get into the next question, um, kind of a fun one. Um, if you could go back in time, convince yourself about Bitcoin the first time you heard about it, knowing what you know now, what would you say to say to yourself and why? Um, however, you can't just mention the prices, uh, you know, I'm going to go crazy. Sure. So uh, if I'm talking to myself, right, I'm going to get I'm going to answer for like if I was talking to myself. Um, the first thing that I would say is, is that Bitcoin is indestructible, right? It cannot be killed. If you accept that, that it cannot be killed, from there, a lot of other things follow. If you believe that it could be killed in some way, then there are all kinds of ways you might talk yourself into ignoring it. So for me personally, knowing that it was not going to die would have been a crucial turning point, and I would have immediately studied it because I would have started asking the question, well, well how do you know that? Like, why do you know it's not going to die? Right. So I, I would have looked at that as number one. Um, the other, the other thing that I would say, and this is again talking to myself. So um, in my life before Bitcoin, I've, I wrote uh, some technical books. One of those was on databases. And in learning about databases, you learn about um, distributed systems, not decentralized, right? Because decentralized has a particular meaning, but distributed systems. And the question then is like, if you have a distributed set of peers, how do they arrive at a, a consistent view of the world, right? How do you resolve disputes amongst peers? By, de by definition, if they're peers, there's really no way for them to resolve a dispute amongst themselves. They just maybe maybe roll some dice or something. Um, but you almost have to appeal to something outside of the system. And what Bitcoin appeals to is energy, right? The, or rather, this 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 hash this hash algorithm. So one thing I would tell myself, as I said, is that it's indestructible. And the second thing is is that its way of achieving consensus um, is is decentralized. It does not appeal to hierarchy. It doesn't appeal to a person. It appeals to something beyond that. It appeals to you know, the, the nature of energy itself. Those are the two things I would say. Yeah. It's super interesting uh, to think about. Um, I've, I've, I know I've mentioned on other shows that I have, I, I haven't figured out what would like, get me to get interested. Cause I remember hearing about it in 2017 and a couple of friends were talking about it and it was just when the price was running up and I was like, what, like, I don't know what this thing is. This seems crazy. Like no way it's sustainable. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, I don't know what, uh, I've been trying to figure out like what would convince me. I don't know if it would be something to do with like the history of money or something like that. Um, or maybe like pointing out the flaws in government or maybe uh, in, in the Fed for instance or something. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough to tough to say what would sink the hook. Yeah, and this, this gets to a question that you'll ask later, which is how do you, you know, what's your pitch? And I think it really depends on who the person is. So like I said, I took your question literally, what would I tell myself? Mm -hmm. And that's based on who I was at that time, um, where somebody's coming from, what they already accept and understand and believe, I think makes a difference as to what types of uh, arguments are going to be persuasive. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. Um, so if you had to recommend uh, books, articles, or podcasts for anyone new wanting to learn about Bitcoin, what would you recommend? Sure. So um, uh, obviously, I would recommend my own book because I wrote it specifically for um, people who are coming to this afresh. Um, uh, my goal with my book was to, it was for pre-coiners. I was trying to write the book that people who were already into Bitcoin could give to their pre-coiner friends and loved ones to try to explain why we need it. Um, so 
obviously I have to show my own book, but um, <laughs> having, having done so um, again, it depends on like what your, what your objectives already are. I think uh, the material on your podcast is great so far. You mentioned um, Jeff Booth. I think he has a lot of good things to say. Um, it's hard for me to give blanket recommendations on people because the history of Bitcoin is littered with the bodies of people who have become shitcoiners coiners later. Um, and that's a term of art. I apologize for swearing on your <laughs> show. Um, so it's a little difficult, but if somebody's interested in the technology side, um, despite, despite Andreas uh, Antonopoulos moving on from Bitcoin and you know talking about Ethereum, the book um, Mastering Bitcoin that he actually a really good introduction to the technology side. I would recommend that. Um, his earlier talks on Bitcoin, really great. Um, I, I think in general, I would just say well, consume a lot of different content and then uh, double down on those that, um, that connect to you the most, right? Don't, it, it's almost guaranteed. Like <laughs> if I try to, if I try to tell everybody, oh, go read, uh, you know, uh, the Bitcoin standard. Well, for half of the people, that's, that book's going to turn them off because it takes a very Austrian view. And if they're not already acclimated to that view, they might not even make it to the Bitcoin chapters, which are later on in the book. So I almost, there's almost nothing I can say for everybody to do, except obviously for my book, but aside from that. <laughs> no, no, it's a good answer. Cause yeah, it's, it all kind of depends on what you have it already in your own head before you start learning about it. Um, all right. So to get towards the end of the show, um, if you had five, 10 minutes to give your Bitcoin elevator pitch to someone, what would you say? And I know we kind of talked about like, it does depend on the audience, but I guess generic view, I guess. Yep. So, um, what I would start with if I was in that situation is I would ask somebody, you know, have you considered getting any Bitcoin? Right. And then when they say no, I would ask them what's stopping you. Right. And then whatever answer they give, that's going to direct the conversation. So some people might say, well, it's too complicated. And then I would say, oh, well, it's actually a lot like a bank account. And here's how. I mean, not, not that it is like a bank account. It is very different for people to know what they're talking about. But I would give an analogy that, that suits them. Or, you know, when I ask them uh, what's stopping you, if they say, well, you know, it uses too much energy. OK, well, then I'll say, well, what does too much mean? And compared to what? And like, whose energy is it? Right. And what do they get in response for that? Um, so that, that would be my, that would be my direction. But um, I guess if I was going to try to make a generic pitch to anybody, I would say um, Bitcoin is the first and most rival excludable digital good. There's never been anything like it. You should get some. How much is up to you, but get a little. Once you have some, then you can decide if that was the right move for you and you can move on from that or do something else. But at least have the experience because having the experience is going to be better than anything you could read or listen to about, about actually giving it a try. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely agree. I know that's, that's kind of how it was for me. Uh, initially it wasn't with Bitcoin, but it was um, actually bought Ethereum first. And then, like you said, once you buy it, you kind of pay attention to it more. You want to learn more about it. You have skin in the game. Um, and then, yeah, you know, after I bought that, most, most things I tried to look up just kind of kept coming back to Bitcoin. And then that, that's, that's kind of my process. And, and, you know, I, I think it took from like May to October until I really kind of was like, all right, I think Bitcoin is like the, the real thing here that's here to stay. Maybe those other things will have some value in the future. I don't know. But to me, like Bitcoin is like cemented uh, in time and it's going to be here. Um, and I, I feel like the most confident about. So um, yeah, I can definitely agree. 
Yeah, that's that's not a bad trajectory. Right? That's that's only a couple of months. Like that's pretty good. Uh, fortunately for me, I heard about Bitcoin when it was the only thing. So so I got to skip over the uh, I got to skip over all that other stuff, except that I tried trading it a little bit, and then I found that even if you're right, you're wrong. So what I mean by that is like, if you trade well and you do a good trade for shit coins, um, <laughs> those gains are measured in uh, fiat terms, and so you could be you could be up in fiat terms and down in Bitcoin terms and have to pay capital gains tax, or you could be down in fiat terms, but up in Bitcoin terms and not. And it's all just very confusing. So anyway, I don't recommend anybody to trade uh, any, any of that stuff. But, but speaking of Ethereum specifically, my uh, colleague of mine was into it and I was skeptical, but he's like, no, no, dude, we got to learn to, pr- we got to learn to program solidity. Cause like I said, I'm a software engineer. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll, I'll spin up a node and we'll, we'll try something. And so I tried to spin up a node using this, um, software called Geth, G-E-T-H, which is like an Ethereum node software implementation. And I just couldn't sync it. I could not synchronize my own local node to Ethereum in 2017, right? This is like like four or five years ago. And I said, dude, I can't use the system because I can't synchronize a node. And the whole purpose of a decentralized system is you can run a node. I was able to, just, just months earlier, I had ran my first Bitcoin node, which was in 2017 to support the, uh, the SegWit software. I was able to synchronize a Bitcoin node in a couple of days. And I was like, dude, I was able to synchronize Bitcoin node. And that's been running since 2009. Ethereum's only been running since 2014. And I can't sync it for three years back. Like this has no chance. And, and uh, anyway, it wasn't persuasive to him, but it was persuasive to me. And I was like, okay, I'm done. Like I tried yeah. it. Didn't work. We're, all, we're done here. Right. Yeah. And that's, no, that's a, that's definitely a good, um, like, like you just said, like you gave, you gave it the opportunity. You're like, all right, I'll at least try it out. And then like, it didn't it didn't have the same uh, decentralization that that Bitcoin offers. So, um, yeah. yeah, there's a good there's a good website called How Many Confs, I think, um, which shows you the relative number of blocks you need to have confirmed to be equal to six Bitcoin blocks and by, by proof of work. And so people say like, oh, Litecoin's faster because it its blocks are every two and a half minutes. But in order to accumulate the same amount of work it takes days and days of time for like the equivalent of one hour of Bitcoin time. So um, yeah, it, it, they're not comparable. And, you know, to me, being able to run a node is really crucial to the whole experiment. Like if you're not able to run your own node, then it's no different. You're trusting somebody else. And we already have that system. Like I don't need that system again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I really appreciate you taking time to, to chat Bitcoin. Um, I know it's kind of a shorter, I'm trying to keep it shorter. Some of my yeah, shows are not, Sure. They don't, that just doesn't happen, which is fine. Um, but again, really appreciate you taking time to come on and chat Bitcoin, talk about your story, your book. Um, I guess to close out, where can people find you and follow you? Sure. So uh, my handle on Twitter is JimboCoin. Uh, no space, no underscore, just JimboCoin. And it's the same on Telegram. And I'm happy to chat on either of those platforms. Uh, reach out to me anytime. Cool. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Jimbo. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jimbo, for coming on the show. You will find in the show notes links to all that was mentioned, including where you can find and follow Jimbo. Shout out to Last Call Monday for the intro and exit music and Drawn to Heal for the show's artwork. You can check both of them out from the links in the show notes. If you got this far, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you feel you have a Bitcoin pitch to tell, I want you on the show. Feel free to reach out to me via Twitter at baby underscore pat with two y's and two t's 
or email me at bitcoinpitchpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.